Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hey everyone, it's Matthew Zachary, and welcome back to Out of Patience. What was once a show is now a party right here on the same feed you already subscribed to. Why? Because I'm now the ringleader of a whole new cast of senior correspondents with segments featuring opinion pieces, rants, and the latest news about the shit show that is our fabulous healthcare system. The only thing that hasn't changed is our mission to make healthcare suck less for everyone. Let's get started. Howdy, friends. Welcome back. What a hell of a show I've got today. And I'm just going to start with this headline from an article that was written about him. This med student was given last rites, but for finding his own treatment that saved his life and this method could help millions. How do you top that? So David Fagenbaum is an assistant professor of medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at UPenn, and he's the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. He is the author of We Get It, a collection of 33 narratives by bereaved students and young adults aiming to help their own community deal with grief and loss with guidance and support. But he's on the show today, live here in person at Offscript Health Studios to talk about his new book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, which is about his journey going from all-star quarterback to how the hell am I dying of this invisible disease? What's wrong with me? And I'm gonna get my last rights read to me. And then going on to use himself as his own guinea pig to find a cure. Literally, like Iron Man 2, when Jarvis said that element is impossible, and yet he did it, but he had all that crazy scarring tissue that somehow got fixed in Iron Man 3, I'm drifting. He's young, he's smart, he's got kids, he's married. What a hell of a story. And fun fact of the day, he's the first guest on my show, or any show I've done, who, like me, also had his last rites read to him on his deathbed. What a niche club to be a part of. And yet, we're still here, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. David Fagenbaum. David, we have many things in common, but the least of which was, I've never had another guest on any show I've ever done who also, like me, had their last rise read to them. Wow. So I have to talk about that. Yeah, there's not too many of us out there. That's a really niche club, let alone last rites in our 
20s, right? That's right. Did you tell him you were Jewish? Was it a rabbi? Because <laughs> I told mine I was Jewish and he went away. So I'm, I have a very complicated background. I'm actually a practicing raised Catholic. Okay. I have a Jewish, fa- my father's father was Jewish. I'm a quarter Jewish, which is where I get my name from. Feigen Baum. That's right. right. And my other Feigen or Fagan? Fagan, but I mean, if probably it was Jewish, should be Feigen. Yes. Right. My okay. other three grandparents are all Catholic. And so right. I have, a, I have what you'd consider a very uh, confused background. But yeah, so a Catholic priest read my last rites to me. Right, and a Catholic priest read my last rites to me in the IC, the neuro ICU the day after my brain surgery, and I literally said, I'm Jewish, and he left. You didn't finish? <laughs> I was like, you know, in hindsight, right, hey, can I, maybe a cracker will help. I'll take a cracker. <laughs> Anything to help, please, just stick around. But no, no, he, and then my mom showed up the next morning. It's like, what the fuck just happened to my son? <laughs> she, like, pulled a Shirley MacLaine you know, it turns out I lost her shit when I told her, oh, the priest, the priest came. Yeah, I actually don't have too many vivid memories from then. I was I was so sick. All my organs were shutting down. So I ha- I do have one memory uh, of the priest in the room. But like I said, it was pretty much lights out for days before that and lights out for right. days after. So one thing you you do or did have that I never had is muscles. So <laughs> well, I, I don't have them anymore. So we're okay. <laughs> you miss your muscles like I miss my hair. A little bit. Because your hair grew back. <laughs> It My did. hair never grew back. It did. So over under, right? Yeah. So you were like, were you like pre-Heisman? Like I, you're so muscular. Like what was it like? To, what's it like to be in shape? I, I, you know, I was in good shape and um, I, I've kind of already forgotten by now what, what it was like because I'm certainly not anymore. But yeah, I, I won a bench pressing contest back then. I was a college football quarterback uh, at Georgetown and um, don't don't have any of those muscles anymore. <laughs> when I first got into advocacy, it was through the Livestrong phenomenon back in the early 2000s. And it was one of the first organizations that talked about like the lifestyle of cancer. Mm. But the story was like Lance was this peak athlete in peak performance and he had all cancer everywhere in his body one day. And like, here you are, similar peak athlete, peak performance and fuck, what happened to me? Is this just like random bad luck? It is. It's random bad luck. And it's funny. I even though I know it's random bad luck, part of me after I got out of the hospital, after spending almost six months hospitalized with this awful disease, I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, if I was eating so healthy and exercising all the time and I got Castle disease, maybe I should just stop eating healthy and stop exercising. Think of all the Twinkies you could have had. I know. I was like, I haven't had a hamburger in a decade. I love hamburgers. (laughs) Like, give me a hamburger. And I ate a lot of hamburgers. I hope you're eating a lot of hamburgers today. And I I found more of like the middle of the spectrum, right? Where it's like, there's somewhere in the middle that's the right spot for this stuff. It's not, it's not where you go a decade without a hamburger and it's not where you, all you do is eat hamburgers. So we're fanboys of each other for quite a while now. This has been a long time coming to have you here reach in person. I think we've been Twitter bros for quite a while now. And like I said, I've been following you since the early 2000s. I mean, I've been so impressed with the work you did with Stupid Cancer. And um, you really inspired me when I was dealing with the illness of my mom from cancer. She passed away from brain cancer when I was in college. And that was just devastating for me. And meeting other people, both going through the illness or death of a loved one and also those fighting cancer at a young age. I remember looking to Stupid Cancer and just being so amazed. And now you wish you had Stupid Castleman's. <laughs> you, you know, in the middle of my Stupid Castleman's, I actually also got a form of Stupid Cancer. Um, I actually got it. It's called an inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor. Wait, wait. Lots of syllables there. Lots. What is it? It's an inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor. It's a rare cancer of the liver. And it is in the middle of my, my battle with Castleman disease. It was between my fourth and fifth deadly flares of the disease. We were doing routine PET scans, which um, anyone who's in the medical field would say, who does a routine PET scan? But it's basically where you just you know, looking for any signs of cancer or disease activity. We caught 
the liver cancer very early and it was resected. And so I've been cancer free for many years now. Um, that was back in 2013. So I guess I'm approaching 10 years, but it was actually my, my Castleman's that's actually brought me to death's doorstep five times. You know, I did my, we work with NORD, the National yeah. Organization for Rare Disorders. And of course, anyone that wants to Google something does not go to WebMD, they go to NORD. Yep. And I, <laughs> I was reading some random articles about, they said, Castleman's is kind of cancer-ish. Yeah. Is that a real thing? It's yeah, cancer-ish? It's, so <laughs> it actually, it's got all these features that are just like lymphoma, which of course is a form of cancer, and all these features that are just like an autoimmune disease, like lupus. And so it really falls in the middle. It's kind of got the worst of both worlds. It's like, like a lymphoma, but like the worst parts of lupus, and you combine them all together, and you've got idiopathic, multicentric Castleman disease. Gesundheit. <laughs> to a non-Jew with a Jewish last name. Exactly. I want to spend some time on your first book because leaning into this whole when shit happens when you're not a grown-up. Yes. And when life lands on you in a way that you're supposed to be in a part of life where it's 10 steps forward every hour mm -hmm. and then boom, shit happens. And your first book was called We Get It. Yeah. And let's talk about that because it, it – this was a while ago, but it's still so relevant today. It'll never not be a relevant topic. That's right. I mean, the concept of we get it is exactly the feeling that I feel when I'm talking to you. And I think the feeling you probably feel when you're talking to me, we get what the other person has gone through. We've been, we've dealt with illness at a really young age and we, we've tried to do what we could to fight back against these illnesses and, and connecting with someone who gets it for me it was really life-changing. When my mom was sick with, with her cancer and I was a freshman in college, I couldn't talk to anyone about what I was going through because I was so afraid that they would treat me differently. I mean, you're supposed to be having the best four years of your life in college. Right, and all of a sudden you're you're dealing with your mother with, with cancer, and I was just devastated by what she was going through. And then it was after she passed away, and actually right before she passed away, I promised her that I would create an organization in her memory to support other college students dealing with the illness or death of a loved one. And she just loved the idea. And so when she passed away a few weeks later, I went back to college just on a mission. This is the last promise I made to my mom. She was the most incredible person in the world. I've got to do this. And I started telling people I've gone through this for the last year coping with, with her illness and now passing. And all of a sudden I learned that all these other people had gone through the same thing as me. And, and I was both devastated to find out that other people were struggling like this, but I was also so relieved to meet other people that were going through the same thing as me. And, and really quickly, I just realized that the power of connecting with people who get what you're going through and, and this idea of, you know, we get it was really life-changing for me, just getting in rooms with other people who'd gone through the same thing as you. One of the earliest taglines of Stupid Cancer was, welcome to the club that you didn't want to join once you hear your family. We get it because we got it. Yes, we get it because we got it. That's exactly what it is. It's we get that the challenge of coping with a loved one with cancer or, or any sort of illness while you're in college, you get what it's like to be a young person dealing with stuff that we shouldn't be thinking about in our 20s. But here we are in the club, like you said, that no one wants to be a part of. Yeah. And this also goes back to how the community of young adults originally just affected by cancer just grew to young adults affected by anything. Mm -hmm. And the first group was people like me who were in their 20s with cancer in their 20s and still in their 20s. Yep. And then came the 30s the, and the teens and then came the long-term pediatrics. But then came the caregivers of other people that were young adults and then yep. came the grown-up parents of little kids. But then came the young adults whose parents were sick mm. or the parents were... Yep. lost yep. and it just became this phenomenon of 
unilateral empathy yes. across the fact that whatever happens to you between like adolescence and late young adulthood that isn't, quote, normal yeah. puts you in this thread of commonality mm-hmm. around what it's like to just have a life interrupted and disrupted when you're supposed to be X, Y, or Z. That's exactly right. And, and just being present with those people, at least for me, was so powerful. And, and so being present was one piece to it. And then the other was that we found that going out and doing things proactively together, like raising money for cancer research or going on a walk for ALS research, that that was really therapeutic for us. And so when I started dealing with, with my own health challenges, and, and as I have been for the last 12 years, I've sort of, sort of leaned on that, this idea of connect with people going through something similar as you, and then also work together to fight back against that thing. So this is a question about like picking your favorite kids. How did you decide on the 33 specific narratives for this book? There must've been way more than 33 to pick from. Yeah, a lot. No, you're absolutely right. And so, and so we get it. The idea is that, okay, we can get together in support groups. And at the time there were a couple hundred college campuses that had AMF support groups. But then we said, well, wait a minute, there's a lot more than a couple hundred college campuses and a lot more young people. So, so let's write this book and let's get narrative so that you can sit down with, with your book and you can connect with people by reading their stories and realizing that you're not so different and you're not so abnormal. And so, yes, we, we reached out to a lot of our favorite members of the AMF community from all over the country. We wanted to have representation from various backgrounds and also various different kinds of schools. And we were able to piece together what I think was a really great author list. So I want to get to this in in a second because, you know, the doctor that is in charge of his own outcomes is a rarity at this point. But is it fair to claim that being misdiagnosed as a young adult is a mistake? Because we're not expecting to have these things, and it's not in the bell curve of scientific data and research and guidelines to even look for these things. I was misdiagnosed for six months. They gave me Robitus for brain cancer, right? So you're, you're young, you're athletic, you're in shape, and then boom, you fall down one day. And how long did it take anyone to take you seriously? It took a little while, but I got so sick so quickly that it was about two weeks from the time that I started having some weird abdominal pain. I felt more tired than ever, had some night sweats. Within two weeks, I was in the hospital with all of my organs shutting down. So my liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow. My so you did it right. So, yes. Yeah, so I look. If they, <laughs> the if they, fast track. Yeah. If they didn't want to pay attention to me, I, I made them basically. But I actually, I went from a medical school exam. I literally took an exam and I have to say, I was taking this exam and I was so sick. I mean, imagine the worst flu you've ever had times 100 and then throw on top of that, that your organs are shutting down. That's, that's how I felt. Deep fried and Twinkies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I'm sitting there, I'm taking this exam. My brain's not working. I'm like trying to figure out, I'm like, is it A or is it C? What's the answer? And I'm like, I don't care because whatever this is that's happening right now, I'm not going to be here to find out what grade I got on this. I mean, that's going through my head. And at that young age, you're 25. Like, wait, what did, what did I just say? I'm, I'm going to die? Well, I'm taking a medical school exam. Right. Like, do I don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah. And so I finished the exam and um, I walked right down the hall of the hospital to the emergency department and they ran tests and, and they came in and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart and your lungs are all shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And that was the beginning of what would go on to be about a six month period in and out of the hospital with everything shutting down. Was it obvious that you had this or 
No, there were so many other things. So Castleman's is, is a rare disease, only about 5,000 patients diagnosed each year in the U.S. So it's certainly not what they were initially thinking. They were worried I had lymphoma, worried maybe I had an atypical autoimmune disease, maybe some infectious disease that we hadn't even heard of. All of these things were, were sort of on the differential, but I was getting so sick so quickly. I had a, a retinal hemorrhage, maybe temporarily blind in my left eye, I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I know you've seen some of those pictures of me when I was so sick. Was Seven, nice, nice little pot belly you had there. I had a big pot belly. <laughs> 70 pounds of fluid just everywhere because my liver and kidneys weren't working. And um, I needed daily transfusions to keep me alive. And, and of course, we just kind of try to keep me alive until eventually um, about 11 weeks in the diagnosis was made. Is it normal for it to go downhill so quickly in this case, or were you unique? It is. No, I, I'm pretty typical in that, it, that patients can go from being totally healthy. I mean, I was on the, my OBGYN ro, uh, rotation, which meant I had literally been delivering humans into this world. Like, in, in my opinion, there's nothing sort of greater uh, than to have the opportunity to be a part of delivering life, right? I mean, really, n- nothing uh, nothing like that. And, and within weeks of that, there I was in the ICU having my last rites read to me. Um, it's sort of what I would consider kind of the, the lowest uh, of the valleys. And um, it was dizzying uh, and it was frightening. And uh, I, I can't even think about what my family was going through during that time. But unfortunately, it is typical. On that high note, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your family. Let's talk about you had a girlfriend at the time who's your wife now. That's right. And this idea of sticking with this. There was a movie a while ago called Fifty Fifty which was about a young adult living his life, just gets sick, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Seth Rogen are in it, and he, he's dating this girl, and he's like, look, get the fuck out of here. Why would he, you, you have a, like, a get-out-of-jail-free card, yeah. go the hell away. Just the idea that she stuck with you, mm-hmm. that alone is, that's, a, that's an Oscar win right there. She deserves one. Yeah. For, for me, not only was she sticking with me, um, so so Caitlin and I had dated for multiple years before um, I got sick. And actually, we decided to take a break just a couple months before I got so sick. And, and we both thought to ourselves, you know, we're 25 years old. We've got all the time in the world. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And then all of a sudden, I was in the ICU dying. And um, so we weren't even dating at this time when I was so sick. And um, she came to the hospital to, to try to see me. And, and, and just as, as you know from, from the book, I really, really did not want her to see me like that. I had burned into my memory so many images of my mom when she was dying and, and right before she passed away. And of course, I have incredible memories as well. But I didn't want that to be Caitlin's last memory of me. And, um, and so I actually had my sisters tell her she couldn't come in the room. And in hindsight, I do regret that. And then the next time when I was hospitalized again, uh, just a few weeks later, and again, in critical condition, uh, and again, when my doctors told my family I wasn't going to survive, I again had my sisters not not let her in the room. So this time she'd kind of see me in Philadelphia. She went down to see me in North Carolina. And um, amazingly, I spent another few months in the hospital. And after that third one, she came to see me in North Carolina again. And uh, I was so thankful because while I was so sick, all I could think about was I really want to be with this person. And I really couldn't imagine a family with her. And I was just so thankful that she actually felt the same way. Well, the book which you mentioned is called Chasing My Cure, Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. And we're going to talk about that book right after this break from some fabulous advertisers. Oh, that's nice. Ah. 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So I've heard you referenced, if you don't know this, you know, it's like Jeb Bush, please laugh as the rare disease MacGyver, <laughs> because you took like toothpicks and spit and some gum wrappers and you figured out a way to help yourself. It's like in um, Prometheus when she like gives herself the, the abortion of the alien inside her just to get this thing out of her. <laughs> right. Well, and then the other, uh, I guess, space analogy is, is it the Martian um, where it's like... Oh, wait, he eats of, his own shit? Yes. Yeah, well, well, not that. Is there that part of the Martian where he's like, I've got to science my way out of this? Yes, exactly. Is there shit well, eating in that? Well, his, he, he poops I don't and makes that. potatoes out of his poop. The poop becomes the okay. soil that grows the potatoes. Okay. Well... Yeah, so you it said was, the it science was pretty bad. It was, it was pretty bad. Right, so you're the MacGyver Matt Damon. <laughs> All right, so this goes back to my question from the first half. So you're a medical professional. I've had lots of doctors and nurses on the show who've gone through all sorts of crazy shit while they were practicing medicine. And how do you not get too far into your own weeds yep. of what's going on? But that was your only option. That's right. Yeah. I mean, early on, I, you know, I was this medical student and um, I was so sick. I mean, I was basically uh, unconscious for months, so I couldn't be a part of figuring out anything. I just had to, you know, hope that my doctors would figure it out. Um, fortunately, um, I got the diagnosis. I was treated with chemotherapy. I got a combination of seven chemotherapy agents. And, and you'll you'll certainly appreciate this concept. I was so sick before I got chemo that I actually felt better with every dose of like the worst chemos there are, adriamycin, cytoxin, etoposide. I actually felt better because it was actually controlling my disease. So that got my disease into remission. I returned to med school. I started getting involved in this orphan disease center doing rare disease research. And then it all came back one year later. Multi-organ failure in the ICU. Nothing was stopping it. And um, so even though um, 
even though I was incredibly sick with this this relapse, I was sort of, sort of aware enough to start trying to pay attention to what was happening because I realized that, oh my gosh, I've just actually relapsed on the only drug undergoing clinical trials. There are no more drugs in development. And so it was during that relapse, which was now my fourth flare, where I realized that I could no longer just hope that some doctor somewhere would figure out a drug for me, that if I wanted to survive, I would need to figure out a drug that could maybe save my life. And I knew it was really unlikely. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to like science the shit out of this. I'm going to like figure it out. It was, oh my gosh, I'm going to die really soon. And it's like a less than 0.0001% chance that I'm going to find something. But, you know, I want to go out swinging if, if I'm going to go out. And so I started paying attention during that relapse. And, and then when I got out of the hospital, thanks to chemo again, I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. Not stupid Castleman's. Come on. <laughs> I should have called it Do stupid. better. I know. And I even was inspired by you. I totally should have done it. So uh, I started um, the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. I started conducting research into the disease. And um, we were making so much progress. Uh, towards understanding this disease when one year later I was back in the hospital with another relapse. And, and what was so scary about this- Wait, hang on. Is that normal? Is relapse expected? It is. Um, so unless you get the right drug in you, um, you will continue to relapse until you die. Then they're progressive relapses. So it's not, you can't, you don't just get better, you know, don't get better and get it worse. You just keep getting worse until you get the right drug and then you can get better for some period of time. And so this is now the fifth time this is happening for me. And the time before I relapsed on the only drug in development, the only experimental drug, which is terrifying. And now I was relapsing even on chemotherapy. I was getting weekly chemo to prevent a relapse and I was still relapsing. And on top of that, I was engaged to Caitlin. We were like so excited. May 24th, 2014, we had this date set and it was like, oh my gosh, I just want to make it to May 24th. If I don't make it to May 25th, that's okay. I just, I just have to make it to May 24th. And so when you combine this, like just, oh my gosh, I want to make it to that date so bad. And then the fact that we were making some progress, it was just such a, it was just heartbreaking to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to make it. And so for the fifth time this happened where it just didn't look like I was going to survive again, thankfully chemo saved my life, but I knew this was going to keep happening unless I found a drug. And so that's when I started doing experiments on my own blood sample that actually asked one of my doctors to cut out a lymph node during my relapse, uh, which you didn't was do it yourself? totally, <laughs> I got about as close as you could do it like to do it yourself. Like with the, with the needle in the heart kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I had someone else take the lymph node out, but he absolutely would not have taken it out if I had not <laughs> demanded slash asked for yeah. him to do that. And Wait, was that like, hey, 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 buddy, hey, <laughs> come over here. Hey. <laughs> it was more to talk to you for a sec. <laughs> it was more like, let me talk to my oncologist. And, you know, and he agreed uh, that it probably was unnecessary to take a lymph node out. But like maybe you developed lymphoma and maybe it's a lymphoma relapse. So, yeah, I think you could probably convince a surgeon to cut it out and you could look to make sure there's no lymphoma. And if there's no lymphoma, then you can use it for research purposes. It was kind of you have your own like, notes in your office after your own dissection. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, there, we, I have like PowerPoint decks of information about my case and Excel spreadsheets. So it was like lymph node came out. I'd been storing blood samples in the weeks leading up to that relapse because I knew at some point I was going to relapse. I didn't know when it was going to happen. And so 
I actually had been collecting blood on myself, putting all those samples in the freezer. So when I got out, it was like, all right, May 24, 2014 is in my future. And all I have in the present are a bunch of samples. So I better get to work. Not your home freezer. This is probably a hospital yes, freezer, that's right? right. <laughs> your your, poor, your poor fiance is like, oh, no. come on. What the hell? You, I, I got sandwiches to freeze. What's going on here? Yes. Fortunately, it was in the, it was in the lab freezer. And um, so, yeah, I, I went to work and it was um, doing things like flow cytometry and what's called serum proteomics, where we're measuring a bunch of proteins in my, in my blood. And then eventually I had this idea from the data that this one communication line in the immune system, it's called mTOR. Um, it actually uh, has this incredible story behind it and how it was discovered and the drug that works on it. But I found out that there was basically increased signaling of this communication line. Like this one part of the way that immune cells communicate with one another was turned on in overdrive. And so I asked the question, well, first off, can we confirm that? So I, I went to that lymph node that I had cut out, and I confirmed in the lymph node. We did this really simple stain. Did you acknowledge the lymph node? <laughs> I, I thanked the Hello, lymph, lymph node. Hello, lymph node. Hello, lymph I acknowledge you. I see you. I see you, and I appreciate you, lymph node. And um, so I, after having a moment with my lymph node, I did this experiment, and it confirmed. It's like this – and I, I'd love to show you the image. It's like this incredible result where, like – I did this experiment where if it's if this communication line is turned on, the lymph node turns brown, or the cells turn brown, and if it's not on, it's blue. And I did it in a bunch of normal lymph nodes, and, and they all came back blue. And I did it in my lymph node, and it was like coffee ground brown. I mean, it was like the craziest thing. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this communication line is on. I thought it would be on for my data. It is on what drugs exist that can block this communication line. And thankfully, there's a drug called serolimus that's been around for about 50 years that's really good at blocking this communication line. It was discovered on the island of Rapa Nui um, in the Pacific, and it was developed for for kidney transplantation, basically suppress your immune system so you don't reject that kidney you get. And so in my case, I said, well, maybe we can utilize this mTOR inhibitor to treat my Castleman disease. And so I, I talked to my doctor and I became the first Castleman's patient ever to receive this drug. Was this like off, off, off Broadway label? Yes, this is very off label. It had never been used before for this disease. And, um, you know, the way I looked at it was that, and something I talk about a lot in Chasing My Cure is that there has to be a first for everything, right? I mean, there's a first surgery that a surgeon does. There's a first treatment. Uh, you know, there, there's a first for everything. And but there's a first time someone ate poison ivy. <laughs> and it didn't and then go we, so we well. learned not to do that again. <laughs> True. So um, very good point. I, I, I need to include that nuance. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, there's a first for everything. And, and firsts don't always work out, like you, like you said. But, you know, I didn't have any other options. And so for me, it was, okay... I've got no alternatives. There's no other things to try. I've got a disease that's kind of chasing chasing after me that's going to be here again soon. And I've got this date in front of me, May 24, 2014, and I want to do something to try to try to get me there. And um, yeah, I made it to, to May 24, 2014, and, and here we are eight years later, and I'm, I'm still doing well on that drug. Well, I, I couldn't help but notice you were alive. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still here. Did I, did I give you that memo? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right, so I want to go through this process of you scienced your way out of this, right? That's, yes. a, that's a wonderful Matt Damon headline to yeah. talk about. And without getting too super nerdy and too many acronyms Which out, I do all the time. We, we have to hit the jargon button every now and then. So you found this kajigger that identified this other kajigger in yep. the biopsy of yourself on a table yep. that you acknowledged and said hello to and thank you to. How does that move from like the laboratory to an actual potential drug that will help other people who match this 
this geneticness? Yes, it's a, it's a great question. And that's kind of what my life is focused on right now is saying discoveries like this are made all the time in labs where someone's like, I think this communication line is on this disease. You do an experiment, you find out that it is or isn't on. And then you publish it in the medical literature and like it just kind of stays there and someone might read it, but probably not. And so what I, I'm now focused on is saying, how can we make sure that all of these insights, whether they're genetic or pathway based or proteomic, whatever it may be, let's get these insights centralized in one place. And then can we quantify which things look more promising? So serolimus for Castleman disease, it had never been done before. There are drugs like thalidomide that had never been used for cancer, and then they became this life-saving cancer drug against multiple myeloma. But what you need, in my opinion, is, is a data engine where you're collecting all of these potential drug disease combinations, and then you're grading which ones look most promising and least promising so that both patients and doctors can utilize this kind of information as they think about their own care, but also so that we as a medical community can invest in clinical trials of those really promising new uses. Because like you said, you find that something looks promising in the lab. That next step to now give it to a human is actually a really big step. But if we as a medical community say, hey, these are the top 20 drug disease pairs where like this drug might be helpful for this disease, but we got to prove it in a trial, I think that would be a really, really great use of federal resources to say like, yeah, let's actually do the trial to prove it out. Because for many of these drugs, they're already generic. So there's no profit motive to actually be able to justify doing a big trial. How did you overcome, I don't know, Hippocrates? <laughs> When you were do your no own harm. test subject? <laughs> yeah, do no harm. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, I think that for me, uh, there's a couple risks when you do research on yourself. So one is that you're going to be biased, like by definition, right? Like I'm, I was very biased in the sense that I was looking for a solution. And, and when you're biased, you can make the wrong decision. So one is that- That's very Tony Stark of you, by the way. <laughs> it's, one is that you're very at risk of bias. And then, uh, and then two, when you're at risk of bias, you might see things that, that maybe aren't there. And so, yeah, you might, might do good or bad and not even really be aware of it. And so the way that I kind of tried to address these challenges in particular, number one, was to get other people to look at the same data as me. So that way, like my, you know, potential blinders or my filter wasn't, you know, making me see things that other people were not seeing or, or vice versa. And so always involving other people in, in looking at these things. And then secondly, reminding myself that the ultimate and best outcome for me will come from finding a real finding that is scientifically like rigorous and, 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 you know, foolproof, right? It's not me finding something that looks promising and like, let me go take it. And so I, I did have to often remind myself to slow down and be like the first result, it doesn't need to be the last result, right? Like let's keep doing this systematically because the worst result or worst thing would be if I just, you know, sort of was so biased that I just, you know, took the first drug because I was so excited that there looked like something was promising. I feel like this could have been a, a Bruce Banner mishap. <laughs> If it went wrong. Yeah, totally. And actually, you know. Although I, you'd be an Avenger, so <laughs> over under. You know, that wouldn't be too bad. No, um, I, I think that uh, in sharing this story, I, I jump right to the serolimus experience where obviously that's been the drug that's helping me. And, and I kind of, and I actually didn't even mention, but often gloss over the fact that um, I'd actually been wrong a few times before we got to serolimus. So I thought a drug called cyclosporin could be helpful. My doctor prescribed it to me. It didn't work. Um, that Just the name alone makes you not want to have it. <laughs> know, cyclosporin. It sounds, it sounds scary, right? And then IVIG, I also thought that would work and, and it did not. And so 
I, I guess I'm probably somewhere around like one of three in terms of like, I think the strike's going to work and it actually um, has. But I think it's important to highlight both the successes and the failures because many of us through the pandemic in particular saw how drugs can be repurposed in ways that maybe we'd never imagined. And, and sometimes that's really, really great. And sometimes it's not great. And so there were drugs that we tried for me that didn't work. And, and then this one, Serolimus, that does. At the end of the day, I, I think that we have to realize, and I know you'll be interested in this because because of your medical work, we have to realize that we have about 3,000 drugs that the FDA has ever approved. And they're approved for about 3,000 diseases. But there are another 9,000 diseases that don't have any FDA-approved drugs. And we have to realize that many of those 3,000 that are approved for something- Will could, work for something. Could potentially work in another disease area. And so it's not to say that like we have a cure for everything and someone's hiding this and it's a conspiracy, but it's to say that we've got a lot of tools that are in our tool, toolbox and they're being used- fairly well, but they're certainly not being fully utilized. And as someone like yourself and me who have dealt with these awful illnesses, the idea that there could be a drug at my neighborhood pharmacy that could be helpful for me or for you or for someone that we love, right. and it's not actually getting to them, that's heartbreaking, right? And so that's, that's like I said, that's, that's my new mission. So the happy ending here is that you're getting pooped on by an infant <laughs> these days who's a younger sibling to your daughter. That's right. So happy family. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing. Yeah, two little kids. Um, you know, as I sit here with you uh, in the studio, and uh, it's been twelve years almost since I got sick. Eight and a half years I've been rushing on this drug. Now I've got these two amazing kids, and I'm married to Caitlin. I mean, it it sounds like a cliche, but and I know you can appreciate this. It is actually a dream. Like this is not what was supposed to happen. I mean, there were times where I just wanted to give up. I mean, there was one time in particular where I was in the ICU and I it was so painful to breathe and everything about me was miserable. It was just pain and suffering and I wanted to give up. And I would have thought that I was giving up on like a day of suffering, but I would have been giving up on like over a decade of now lots of happiness. And, and I think that it's important for anyone listening, as we think about our low points in life and our high points in life, when you're at your lows, you, you don't realize what high points you know are in your future, in your horizon. I definitely didn't. And so, yeah, this just feels like a total dream, whether it's you know poop on my hands because my buddy boy- uh, It's a good problem to have to be <laughs> shat on by a that's kid. That's right. I will take it. I will take it. It's amazing. David Fagenbaum is the author of We Get It, which we talked about during the first half of the show, and the author most recently of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, available wherever books are sold. I have a copy. I read it. It's fantastic. Just a disclaimer, like this was like um, some kind of like movie, stunt actors do not attempt. <laughs> Try not to be your own guinea pig if you're a doctor, but hey, if it works, Bruce Banner, Avenger, you're done. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad we could spend some time together today. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies. It's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Special thanks to Brianna Seely for added support. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.